This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential and welcome for this special EU election weekend. It's the world's second biggest election. Up to 200 million people are going to be casting their ballots over the next few days and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Before we dive into the ins and outs of what's going to happen this weekend in the podcast panel, our guest interview this week is with Bruno Le Maire, the finance minister of France. In the interview, he goes into why he's really taking a difficult ambitious, tough line when it comes to things like competition policy, developing a new industrial policy, changing how tax works in Europe. He's willing to throw out a lot of the traditional liberal economic textbook in order to make sure nationalists and populists don't get their way. In the interview, he explains why we need to join the train. Joining me now on the podcast is the first minister of finance that we've had on the podcast. We've had presidents and prime ministers and foreign ministers, and now Bruno Le Maire, the finance minister of France. Thank you so much for joining us, Monsieur Le Minister. Thank you. I'm very happy to answer to your questions. Well, we're now in this intense moment in the European election campaign. So I thought we could begin by you sharing what is your final message to voters? There are millions who are questioning, does the EU make their life better? What do you say to them before they consider voting? The first message is go voting because we have to fight against indifference, which is maybe the most important concern for these elections. You have the future of Europe in your hands and you have to decide. It's time to decide. There is only one lap on the 26th of May. Go voting and make your choice. If we think to something like the G7 presidency of France, it seems to me that you're pushing for new contours in the capitalist system. Things like addressing the fact that many companies are not paying a significant amount of tax. Often it's the digital companies. Can you tell us a bit concretely what you will be proposing to the other big countries? How are we going to move from everyone saying this is a problem to actually taking action? The question of taxation will be really at the heart of uh, the French finance G7 because we are deeply convinced that there is a need to build a new capitalism which would be fairer, more efficient, taking into account the key question of climate change. 
That's why one of the key issues for us is the question of a fair, efficient taxation for uh, international giants, for huge companies. We are working on the possibility of having a minimum level of corporate tax. And I think this is key if we want to avoid having huge companies escaping the right level of taxes that they should pay in their nations. We are making a proposal with the support of Germany, which is very much involved in that minimum taxation for corporate tax. We also have the support of the U.S. because the U.S. administration already introduced such a taxation. And I hope that we will be able to convince all the seven members of the G7 to go this way of the minimum taxation for the corporate tax. We will also work on the key question of digital taxation. Everybody is aware of the difficulty of having internet giants paying less taxes, around 40 points, than uh, the SMEs in Germany, Italy, France or the UK. So there is a need for a fair taxation of digital activities. There are some national taxations, but it would be far better to have an OECD solution. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the G7 will be able to put a very concrete proposal on that issue. Is it too early to speak of numbers? I know Franz Timmermans, the socialist candidate for commission president, he says 18% is the number for the corporate rate. Would you go that far or do you need to still build a consensus? Uh, there is a need for a consensus if we want to be efficient. And if I give you today a figure for the minimum taxation, it will raise a lot of expectations and I fear it might block the possibility of having a consensus. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we have to define a consensus on the principles for that minimum taxation, which is really a huge international change in the international taxation. And then we will discuss about the figures. And you mentioned climate in the earlier answer. One of the more controversial actions we could take is some kind of carbon tax at the border. So to prevent the fact that European companies might be competitively disadvantaged by lower cost or lower standard economies in the rest of the world, uh, or the fact that we might be simply exporting our environmental problems to other parts of the world rather than removing them from the global system. Do you think we can go in that direction to tackle some of these climate issues? Yes, I think this is one of the possibilities if we want to prove that in the fight against climate change, European nations are really at the forefront. The idea of introducing carbon taxation at the borders is one of the possibilities. But at the level of G7 of the finance ministers, we are also willing to think about the possibility of having a green finance, which means having a clear assessment of where do the money go. When you are putting some money in a financial institution, in a bank or any other financial institution, you need to know where your money go. Do you invest in green technologies or not? And I think there is a need for more transparency. And if we want the green finance to be efficient, we need to have reliable figures and more transparency. We will work on that too at the G7. Now, another issue that I think comes up more and more, and we touched on it a little with the digital question, is this idea of reasserting sovereignty. And one of the other ways it's coming up in discussion now is around industrial policy. 
and your government's been an advocate of developing more national champions, for example. How quickly can that move forward? I mean, I've read this week that the Mittelstand in Germany are getting a bit sceptical of some of these ideas of developing the national champions, and you want to see competition rules changed and so on. What are the next steps to actually bring that about? I think that we can move on very quickly, and I also think that we should move on very quickly. And I will be in Berlin at the beginning of June having a meeting with the BDI to try to explain to the Mittelstand in Germany how important it is to move on to have really a very strong industrial policy at the European level. And I also want to make very clear that this policy should be based on two pillars. The first one is protection. We need to have more protection against investment that would have as only intention to uh, steal our technologies, our key technologies. There is a new rule that has been adopted at the European level with the screaming directive. I, I think this is good path in the right direction, and there is a need for more protection. But there is also a need, and I want to be very clear on that, for more investment, more innovation, There is a need to gather our forces. When we have decided with Peter Altmaier to build a new industry for batteries, the idea behind that is really to be sovereign and to build the European sovereignty in a key technology, which are the electric batteries. The choice is quite simple. Do we want to be dependent on the Chinese or the South Korean batteries for our automotive industry? Or do we want to be independent and to have our own electric batteries produced either in Germany or in France with the support of other nations like Poland, Sweden and Spain? My choice is quite clear. I want a free, independent and sovereign Europe in the field of new technologies like batteries or artificial intelligence. Now that covers, I guess, the strategic end of the politics. There's a practical question as well. I wonder, is it the case that in order to limit support for the populists, that we also need to move more in this policy direction? We need to potentially invest more in budget fiscal terms, and we need to be willing to do things that maybe don't look efficient in the economic textbook, but which allow us to manage our politics. Is that part of the thinking as well? Yes, you're right. For the first time in the European history, we will have to face the risk of a total dislocation of the European project. And if we want to be efficient in the fight against populism and the rise of nationalism, we need two things, decisions and results. We need to take some quick decisions on many issues, on industry, on the protection of borders, on the reinforcement of the Eurozone, for instance. It's time to have our own Eurozone budget. It's time to adopt all the decisions to put in place the banking union. It's time to put all the technical decisions to have a real capital market union, which would provide us all the funding that we need to invest more and to innovate more. We need decisions and we need results to be able to prove to our citizens, well, The European Union, it's not only discussions, gathering, it's also decisions, facts and results. Let's come back to the question of electric batteries. Tomorrow, when you will buy your car, you will have cars with Chinese batteries and cars with European batteries. I will do my best 
and I will do all the necessary efforts to have cars with European batteries. Another question I had around the Eurozone budget is that, and we get technical maybe for a second here, it seems maybe there's a fundamental fight going on here where it's logical that there should be a Eurozone budget if you have a Eurozone. But for example, Finland and the Netherlands, they seem very unwilling to compromise. So is this something where a compromise can be made or is it a case where it has to be a fundamental battle where there is eventually a winner and a loser and maybe the, the battle is delayed until you can come to a final result? In the European construction, there has never been winners and losers. We always built Europe on the basis of compromise. And I really hope that we will be able to find also a compromise on the question of the Eurozone budget. We have accepted some important changes in the Eurozone budget. For instance, we have accepted that the Eurozone budget is focused on the question of more convergence among the European nations. And for the time being, we have put beside the question of the stabilization function of the Eurozone budget for the spirit of compromise, for the sake of finding a solution with the Netherlands. I hope that the Netherlands and other countries that still have some doubt about the Eurozone budget will be convinced and uh, will join our efforts to have this necessary tool which will help us to reinforce the Eurozone. And frankly speaking, I'm confident that we will be able to find a compromise. And do we do it one step at a time? For example, separating the budget from creating perhaps a Eurozone finance minister? Or is it better to deal with it all in one go and come up with something that's larger? It's clearly a step-by-step approach. We need to have all the necessary tools for the creation of the Eurozone budget at the end of June, for the next European Council Mm -hmm. at the end of June. And I'm confident that we will find a compromise with the 19 member states of the Eurozone and that there will be a Eurozone budget that will be defined at the end of June. Then there is the second step, which is the entry into force of the banking union. I hope that we will be able, by the end of this year, to adopt all the necessary decisions to have a real banking union. And the very last step will be a finance minister for the Eurozone, which would embody the Eurozone and which will make very clear to the other European nations, but also to the rest of the world, that the Eurozone is clearly a very strong political, economic and financial continent. Now, we're into the season of allocating the new top jobs for the EU, and one that is sometimes forgotten, at least not in the finance world, but in the political world it's forgotten, is the European Central Bank presidency. France has, I think, up to four really strong candidates for that position. But I wonder, is that something that needs to be built into one big overall package of jobs, or is it something that you believe should be separated from the Commission, Council, Parliament presidencies when we we figure out who's going to do them? I will be very clear with you. It's not time to speak about the top jobs. Let's think about the citizen. The citizens are making that choice for the next European elections. They are looking at the proposals, at the vision for the future of Europe, for the future of the Eurozone, for the protection of their borders, for the fight against illegal immigration, and all the key questions. How do we put more solidarity, more prosperity among the European nations? The question of the top jobs will come after the European elections. And I really think that it would not be wise to put this question of the top jobs before having the results of the European elections. 
And one final question, which I forgot. It's on trade. My colleagues will be very angry if I didn't ask you. Do you think we can do something with the Mercosur trade deal? Can we finish it this year? Or is it now getting too political with the Brazilian government, too political on agriculture at our end? I think it's up to the nations of South America, Brazil and other nations to make their mind about this trade issue. So I'm waiting for the decisions coming from those nations, and then we will decide. So are you worried about the beef farmers in France? I think that's what my colleagues are really aiming at. They think that those farmers are going to be very worried by the deal and that it could derail it at the last moment. Everything depends on the deal. We want a fair deal, which means that the rules must be the same for agriculture in South America and in Europe. You cannot impose, and as you know, I have been minister in charge of agriculture in France. You cannot impose very strong rules as far as environment is concerned, for instance, to the European farmers, to the French farmers, and then open your borders to products that would not abide by the same kind of rules. It would not be fair, and things that are not fair, things that are unfair, are never accepted by the citizen. Minister, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You were listening to French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire. And welcome now to the podcast panel. It's a new lineup this week. We've got our regular guest, Lena Abarus. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. We're missing Alva Finn. She's off partying in Geneva or probably doing some work. But either way, she's abandoned us. So shame on you, Alva. But luckily, we've got Cornelius Hirsch, our resident polling expert, joining us once again for the countdown to the EU election. Hey, Cornelius. It's great to be back and I'm really excited for the election. And you know what? You're also our resident Austrian expert this week. And we are going to start with a little incident which has brought a lot of glory to Austria over the past few days. And that is your far-right Freedom Party getting down and dirty with a supposed Russian businesswoman. And the leader of that party, Heinz Christian Strache. Is it Strache? I'm saying it right? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway... He was in a villa in Ibiza a couple of years ago, willing to trade government contracts for favorable media coverage. It's blown up the government. In fact, it's collapsed the government, and you're heading for new elections. Is this kind of like your dream, Cornelius? As a polling expert, I mean, not as a voter. <laughs> as a polling, yeah. As an Austrian, as a, as a voter and a citizen of Austria, it's not my dream. But as a political chunky, I think those are the most exciting times for everyone here. And I think the big question that everyone is asking is what effect will this have on the European election this Sunday in Austria and then also, yeah, uh, for the next snap election in Austria. And what is your prediction there? We've seen one small poll which shows the Freedom Party going from 23 down to 18 percent, which is not very good. But again, it's not exactly a total collapse. Some people are willing to vote for them no matter what, really. Exactly. We've seen this one poll, but it only has a sample size of 500 But indeed, I don't expect a complete collapse of the Freedom Party of Austria. They have some very loyal voters. And the question is whether how much can the governing People's Party benefit and how much the other parties. And they seem to be the winners so far, Sebastian Kurz and the centre-right. But then you have to wonder why they're getting that credit, given that they're the ones who went into a governing coalition with the party that's disgraced themselves. And Mm -hmm. now they seem to be the winners. Yes, but still... Rather conservative voters now have basically only one other party to vote for, and that would be the People's Party. Mm -hmm. Lena, what's your take from a distance? It's politics. 
I think history always repeatedly, we had issues at the last minute, just before the elections, right around the corner, you would find a very bad scandal that will shake up. So you think that someone who was really opposed to the Freedom Party set them up? you know, maybe a government agency or something like that from another country. When you counter lobby or you want your opponent to lose, you keep all the dirty stuff for the right moment. I hope that we don't find more stories and nothing happens in other European countries just around the corner from the elections, because this would really harm the image of Europe. And the world is looking into these elections. Is it going to be a closer Europe? Is it going to be a peaceful Europe? Is it going to be a united Europe? So there's a lot of question mark and such scandals definitely don't help at all. Well, why don't we just turn directly into that election now? I think at one level, we can say very emphatically that every polling indication is that we're going to have a more fragmented Europe whether that is the two biggest parties losing their combined majority, whether it is the rise of a set of splinter Eurosceptic groups, basically they can't unite, so they're going to get more votes than ever, but be split across several groups. It's starting to look like the Netherlands kind of expanding across all of Europe with all of these parties. But before we turn to Europe, um, I wanted to make a point about the polls, which is around the fact that we saw the Australian election last weekend, and it had some very interesting results. I think virtually everyone in Australia and a lot of outside observers took away polling headlines which suggested the Labour Party was going to win that election. And that's because on two-party preferred basis, the Labour Party was in front in every single opinion poll for two and a half years. But if you drilled into the numbers, the polls were still correct. So the final result was within the margin of error of the polls. Labour was never the biggest party They were actually the second biggest party. It's only when you eliminated all of the other options and Mm. made it a two-horse race was Labour in front in the polls. And the ruling prime minister, the conservative, he was always the preferred prime minister. So you have this situation where everyone is turning around saying the polls were wrong, and actually the polls were right. It was basically a statistical tie. Yeah, I think I'm repeating myself, but I just really want that all listeners, whenever they see a poll, they think of this historic margin of error that we've seen throughout history, that polls on average miss the election result by about two percentage points. So when you look at a poll, have in mind these two percentage points, the same as in in Australia, and you'll never be as surprised as others will be. But in Europe, we have to say that even if we'd have a big upset and the polls would miss big parties by two or even more percentage points, then our overall narrative that the European People's Party and the Social Democrats together won't be able to have a majority still holds. Mm -hmm. Polls are always used not just to give us a perspective. I think as well it's a very important tool to influence and to make people think of their vote and to whom they are supporting. And there's always error. I mean, it, I never believe polls, I have to say. I mean, after... Ooh, after clash, <laughs> clash at the <laughs> podcast panel. Yeah, but you know, with the, with the American elections, um, we... Uh, This is the surprise of all surprises, I think, in in 2016. And then, I don't know, the Brexit. I'm very, very prudent this year with with European elections. Yeah, I I mean, mean, those are always the two examples that we hear when it's all about how the polls are so wrong. But if you drill closer, it's actually that, especially the Brexit poll was as well within this margin of error. Right. It's always it's just two percentage points. I think the last polls or the poll of polls ahead of the Brexit referendum was something like 51 in favor of Remain. And that's very well within the and margin of 10 error. of the last 22 were actually saying Leave would win. Yeah. And but with the course, US, they, they got the popular vote right. They yeah. just didn't get the distribution of the votes. But right. I mean, that's also the important thing, right? Readers want to know 
who's going to win and if the polls indicate, well, the chance is higher for the other candidate. Of course, I think it's fair to criticize mm -hmm. polls and posters and especially also media and polling firms, how they communicate their results. Yeah. And What else I, could we do, though, Lena? Could we, for example get our dogs to predict who we're going to win the election? <laughs> yes, and you just need a brownie, my own dog, because he just made the right choices these Tell days. Tell us more. How did that come about? Well, I have to give the credit for a lovely intern in our office, Evangeline, together with another intern in one of our associations, Animal Health Europe. We decided just to, it was a pure joke in the beginning to let our pets predict who's going to be the winning Spitzer Kandidaten. For European Commission President. Yeah, for the European Commission President. Yeah, and my brownie chose the socialist and the Animal Health Europe pet Thai chose the Greens. Oh, we need to get that dog to the to vet to yeah. have their heads in. That, this, is, this is my big thing, that there is a green wave in this election, allegedly. It started with the Greens doing very well in Belgium and Luxembourg and Germany last year. And so they invented this idea of the green wave in the PR department, and it's caught on. Like, you see it in headlines everywhere now. It was even in the Canadian yeah. elections. But when you look at the numbers, the Greens are on track to get maybe three, five, six seats more than they did last time. They'll have less than 10% in the parliament. Good news for them. They could be kingmakers and really involved in mm. running the EU, mm. but it's not a green wave. It's not a green wave in terms of how much seats the Green parties will have in the next European Parliament. But I think what is fair to say is that it's a wave of green topics. I mean, I think with the climate strikes, Ooh, nicely done. Um, it's definitely on the front for a lot of voters and it's really important. We've also seen that in the Europe barometer that actually what's your most important topic, immigration went down and climate crisis went up. Sure. So I think that's the green wave we can talk about, but definitely not the seats for the Green parties. Again, they were very smart in how they communicated this time. I believe we talked about the manifestos before, the Greens manifesto and their social media and the media engagement they have done, the PR. It was a very good, well-studied machine. The language, everybody was able to understand it, the consistency. This is what I believe they have really progressed and developed themselves. Um, with I tell you wave. who else is a machine, Nigel Farage. <laughs> That yeah, man's gone from please. zero to 35% in the space of two minutes, and that his party structure is basically a company dictatorship, let's call it. I mean, I don't know what the combination of those two words is, but that's basically what his party is. And, you know, he just dominates everything. He's getting 40 times the search queries of any other MEP candidate. Yeah. In, in it's a right it's now. a déjà vu of 2014, isn't it? Like when, when he, with his UKIP yeah. party, like just... <laughs> proved everybody wrong and it seems he's able to do it again um, at the moment uh, the Brexit party could even be the strongest national party in the next European parliament wow Interesting. alongside Lega in Italy in Lega in Italy and the Christian Democrats in Germany exactly yeah. yeah that's an interesting point so if you look across the big countries of Europe a Eurosceptic party is likely to be biggest or will definitely be biggest in the UK and Italy and possibly in Poland and in France. So they're not going to get a majority at all. They're not going to be able to run anything. But you have a situation now where the biggest countries of Europe are having their politics and their political debate skewed by these parties quite significantly. And that will impact all Europe with the words, whether with the US, with China, with what's happening in the Middle East, and with Iran. I mean, Europe is in the middle, and it really needs to be playing this very strategic role in the political arena. And having these kind of governments, it's really worrying. 
people would be wondering who's going to replace the role, the peacemaker all the time. Wherever there's a disaster, Europe comes and pitch in or makes mediation. So this is one of the points that I would really worry about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is very true. But on the other hand, I think as for you, the Green Wave is one of those myths about the European election. For me, it's this Eurosceptic takeover. Because well, you think the big news was in the last election. Exactly. Marine Le Pen was already really strong in 2014. She could even lose seats this time compared to 2014. And the big, big win is Salvini, definitely. But why it's still a myth for me is also that it's not only them winning, it's also the liberals that, thanks to Emmanuel Macron, are able to significantly improve their number of seats in the European Parliament. And so I think the overall story won't be that the Eurosceptic takeover, it really is the fragmentation of the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. I think that's the big thing that we're going to see on Sunday. And yeah, it's going to be a really, really interesting and exciting election night. And if we fast forward to that summit that the leaders will have on Wednesday, I bet the Liberals are going to dig in. They're not going to give it over to the European People's Party like normal. Um, Let's maybe wrap it up with a final request for a prediction. You've got to give me a number, a percentage of how many people are going to turn out to vote in these elections. 32 percent. 32. Wow. Wow. So last time it was 42. And I think with all this polarization going on in Europe, I think it's going to be higher than last time, but not 50 percent. So I I say 49. I say 46. Okay, you have heard us make the call. Whoever loses by the most is going to bring champagne for the others next week. Oh, that could be me always. (laughs) My pleasure. Champagne socialist, I had you pinned, Lina, and I was right. Okay, we are going to say goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. Keep a great eye out on Sunday night. Cornelius is going to be giving us live updates throughout the evening. It's going to be dramatic like Eurovision. You're going to see these results piling in from 11 p.m. on Sunday night, and it's going to be great. So go to politico.eu for that. Make sure to follow our live blog and check the latest projections. It's going to be a great night. There you go. You heard it straight from the polling horse's mouth. Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin made this episode possible. We will see you and hear you and talk to you again next week. 